Thanks for pressing play. Today, we have a very special episode, and we actually made a change in our regular publishing calendar to bring you this very special conversation. Now, as you know, the United States of America is in a deep, much-needed conversation about race, equality, justice, and policing. Sparked in large part by the killing of George Floyd and now his murder trial. We are honored to bring you this legendary dialogue with one of the most qualified, experienced, and highest profile law enforcement leaders in America. His name is Dr. Cedric Alexander, and he also happens to be black. Now, you probably know Dr. Alexander. He's had a 40-year career in policing, public service, and mental health. He's the former police chief and public safety director for DeKalb County in Georgia, where uh, he actually led five departments, including police, fire, and emergency management. He's the former police chief of Rochester, New York. He served as a federal security director in the TSA, where he was the executive in charge of one of the uh, U.S.'s largest and busiest airports, DFW, in Dallas-Fort Worth. He also served on former President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Cedric holds a doctorate in clinical psychology, and he's also the author of a great book called The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. What you are about to hear is a very powerful, authentic dialogue with a great American who is deeply committed to public service and bringing our country together at a time of great consequence. Now, you've probably seen um, Dr. Alexander on stage giving a speech or on television, especially recently. He's been on virtually every major news network. And unlike TV, where we only get a few minutes with him, today we go deep, like you can only go on a Real Dialogue podcast. This is a very special conversation that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and uh, we're very glad you're here. We're sponsored by my good friends at NetSuite. Check out netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite is the platform you need to run a legendary business. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dr. Alexander, it sure is a pleasure to meet you. The pleasure is mine. Great being here with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And as you might expect, I have uh, a ton of questions for you today. I'm hoping to get into in our conversation, mm -hmm. um, but really wanted to understand from you kind of what's most on your mind right now. Well, for me, being a, you know, having had been a 40 year police veteran in and out of the profession for the last 40 years and having been a practicing psychologist as well. And thinking back over the last 40 years of my career prior to my retirement, a couple of years ago, I've spent my days and nights now writing a number of op-eds, either from the Post or CNN or whomever, 
And it's all about police reform. It's all about reimagining police in the 21st century. And going back a few years when I was public safety director in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is a large metropolitan uh, community there just adjacent to Atlanta, part of Metro Atlanta, I uh, had opportunity following the unfortunate death of Michael Brown uh, when this country was at such a chaotic place following that death, along with a number of other police-involved incidents that were of great question. The former President Obama put together the 21st Century Task Force report, which myself and 10 other very talented, wonderful people were a part of. And we delivered to uh, then-President Obama on May 2nd, 2015, uh, a document that was referred to as 21st Century Task Force report that we delivered that outlined a number of suggestions as to how we could build police and community relationships. And of course, a lot of things were done at that time to help bridge those relationships. We had a new administration to come into play. Uh, that document was dismissed, of course, and every administration got their own ideas, a way of doing things, and certainly the last one did as this current administration will. But that being said, one thing that document never lost was the respect of many chiefs and sheriffs across this country, particularly in larger metropolitan cities and moderate-sized cities, cities, the value of that report. So for me, that was kind of a jumping-off place. And, and we continued on into the 21st century and more recently here, a lot has happened over the last five or six years, but now more recently we're in this space around George Floyd and trying to, as a nation, work through uh, the horrors of that event and everything that was associated with it, along with a number of other events that has created a great deal of distrust and continued pause between, um, in terms of how people think about their local policing. So I think that as we hear the term reform or reimagine terms that have become so popular in our American verbiage today and uh, words like transparency, words like uh, accountability, and in as much as people may be in some ways tired of hearing about them, they're not going anywhere, anywhere because the American public across this country, and let me be clear, the American public, not just people of color, but the American culture, want to see something different uh, happen with our policing. Because people are at a place right now, to be honest with you, where they want to, people want to be involved in their police department. They want to know what it is that you do and how do you do it. We don't want to know about your policies. They want to know about decisions that you make. Because we live in a world now, when I was growing up as a baby boomer, uh, you didn't question authority. But now we live in a, you know, in a society where all of us can consume some, assume some responsibility because one thing we taught our children to do was what? Ask questions. Speak so up, right? That's right. Speak up. Uh, so don't be offended when they ask questions. Uh, we get young police officers ask questions that I wouldn't have dared ask as a young police officer. <laughs> but, you know, it's a different generation and you have to stop. You have to answer their question to help them understand conceptually what it is that you're trying to do. So the world is changing. And as we begin to think about, rethink or reimagine policing, one thing that I've learned, uh, Chris, is that when we think about reimagining policing, 
put it all on the table. Let's put it all on the table. We don't have to do nothing the way that we used to do it. But here's what we do have to have. We have to have good public safety and we have to have men and women who feel that they're very, they have to feel that they're very much a part of the communities in which they serve. And I don't care whether they are policing in Butte, Montana, or they're policing in Miami, Florida. People need to feel that you are part of that community. That means that your organization is open, is transparent. People want to see inside how you do things, why you do things the way that you do, because you want to build a relationship with your police department because public safety is only as strong as the public and the police department join together. Police cannot do it by themselves and community cannot do it by themselves. And we know that there are a lot of disconnects between police and particular many communities of color across this country, from California to New York, from Montana to Texas. We got to build and create those relationships and and make it work for us because we cannot be a nation divided. And even though we oftentimes feel that we are in a larger political landscape of this, but communities and police must find a way to work together. So as we rethink policing, reimagine policing, this is not about defunding police. You cannot defund police. You have to have police have to have the budget to do the things that they do to carry out their mission. So we don't want to take any of that away from them. But what we do want to be able to do is be very specific about what it is we want police to do, hold them to that standard and expect results. But we cannot ask them to deal with all the social ills of this country from homelessness to lack of jobs to poverty and poor education. Call the police, call the police, call the police, because we're asking police to do things that they're not trained to do. And we have to really define and be very clear about what we want police to do in our communities and not take monies away from them. But they need to find other monies to fund some of these other social service organizations that can get to people who are struggling with homelessness and, and, and mental health issues and domestic issues. But you don't take that out of police budgets. You let police budgets need let them have what they need to have in order to provide good public safety. Hold them accountable to that with some with some ways to measure that success. Right. Uh, but you don't take anything from them, I think, was not the way to to approach this uh, whatsoever. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And, you know, one of the things is a citizen. Obviously, I've never been in law enforcement. I think most people don't realize if I'm reading the data right, that four out of 10 murders in this country go unsolved. And the number of rapes that go unsolved, I believe, is higher than that. And so when I hear things like defund the police, frankly, it makes me angry because I think, well, what do you want to have happen when you dial 911? And what I think we want is, is we want you and your teams to show up and help us. Yeah, and that's true. So let's take homicide for an example. Homicides are usually 
in most cases, statistically, they're really committed by people who either know each other or been acquainted with each other in most cases. And I think you've read that too. And that's pretty much, I believe, what the literature still points out. When we go into communities, particularly into many of our urban communities, right? I won't pick on any one particular city, but it could be LA, it could be Chicago, it could be New York, Miami, any large metropolitan community. And in those communities, oftentimes where we see the highest level of violence and deaths are in communities that are, are struggling economically, poor communities, depressed communities. And when you have these homicides, people are under the impression that police can just go in, bring their CSI team with them, and they can solve these cases. So, doctor, it's not like we see on TV where in 45 minutes no, no, you have no, all this space age right. technology and the bad guy goes to jail? That's right, because here's what have, have to happen. We see these homicides take place. And those cases get resolved by people being able to talk to me as a detective, people that I have developed relationships with, people that can confide, confide me with a sense of confidence, long as it's legal and ethical. And it's building those relationships. But if we have police departments that are just making a zillion dollars in overtime, and there are no results because we're not building those relationships, then that's problematic too. Because in many cities, you have all this money going out in overtime for these cases, but the closure rates are extremely low, horribly low in comparison. Now, part of that is, is that we as police departments really got to get inside those communities and create relationships because it's going to be people who are going to lead us to the perpetrators and understanding in many communities, people are very afraid to come forward. In some communities, there's this no snitch rule, but we got to get beyond that, but it's going to take relationship building in order to do that. Right. Because we can't have, 10 homicides, 20 homicides over a course of a weekend in any city USA, our number of shootings, and we're racking up tons of overtime chasing after ghosts, right? But the closure rates are very, very low because many of your city leaders are questioning that now. Alexander, I'm paying you all this money as an investigator, but your closure rate is zero. <laughs> Yes. We all are going to get measured. We all have to accept that. And we have to help our detectives. We have to help our police departments. We got to be able to get into those communities in a way that we can be a better value. But that is just one aspect of it. But a lot of leaders are saying, if I'm chief of police, Alexander, you got all these homicides. But your closure rate is way below the national standard. 15, 20, 30 percent city leaders are not accepting that anymore. Yes. And I think part of what gets lost in some of these discussions is those statistics are people. Those were mm -hmm. human beings who were murdered. That's right. And for every murder, what's left behind 
is a family in tatters. And uh, over the last 18 months, doctor, I've had a front row seat to this. One of my best friends who lives four blocks from me was attacked at 3 a.m. in his house in a home invasion robbery. Mm -hmm. They kidnapped him and they murdered him. And so uh, myself, his other close friends and his family, we have had a citizen's front row seat to how, in our case, the county of Santa Cruz, the sheriff of Santa Cruz, Jim Hart, who, by the way, references your document that you created for uh, President Obama mm-hmm. and talks about how back then they implemented many of the suggestions and recommendations you made. Mm-hmm. And what I've tried to explain to people is what it's like as somebody who loves someone who's just been murdered to sit in a conference room and have the chief, the in this case, the sheriff, the lead detective and the coroner walk in and sit down, look you in the eye and say, your friend is here with us. And then in our case, Sheriff Jim Hart said what I think every family wants to hear at that moment. He said, we will stop at nothing. We will spare no expense until we bring these people to justice. <clears throat> and uh, Dr. Alexander, nine months after that happened, four evil people were arrested in my friend's murder. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear defund the police, I it makes me furious, frankly, because I know what it's like to sit in that room. And mm-hmm. of course, nothing can bring back our horrible loss. But there's I can't imagine anybody who loses a loved one in this situation that is not desperate for justice. Yeah. And it is painful. It is hurtful. The systemic effects of a loss in such a violent manner in which you just articulated runs very, very deep. And it expands across generations of families. And for police, police understand as your sheriff understands, that we got to put every available resource that we have in in order to try to effective arrest. But what made that case, and I don't know that case, and so I won't speak specific to that case, but what make many of these cases are relationships that we garner in the community. That's what make many of these cases. We have the technological advancement that helps us to be able to put a case together, whether it's video cameras or license plate readers, or we got a variety of different tools technology wise. But at the end of the day, Chris, it comes back to people. It comes back to having those relationships with people. But we have a lot of police agencies that are so overwhelmed with violent crime that they run from one horrible case to another horrible case and to another horrible case. And no one helps them. No one gives them information. And and by the time they work on this case, another case happens. You only have so many homicide teams and it becomes overwhelming. And then, but your city leaders are saying, okay, we just paid out a ton in overtime. Our closure rates are very low. The officers take the hit and the blame, and it's really not their blame, but we have, all of us have a larger responsibility because we got to get inside those communities. 
and investigators, uniform officers, community service units, chiefs, assistant chiefs, sergeants, lieutenants, road personnel. We all have to try to build those relationships, right? Because that's what's really going to solve crime, help us solve crime in many of these communities. And doctor, is that is that what people mean when we hear the term community policing? Is that what that means or what exactly does community policing community mean? Community policing is a whole approach to policing. That's exactly what it means in its most basic fundamental term, community policing. It means that you and I have a relationship. It means that you and I are both supported of public safety in your community. We want the same thing. I have the authority that's given to me by the state of California, let's say, right, to go out and affect crime, even to take a life if it's justifiable. I have the right to affect arrest, take people's freedoms away from them. I have the right to investigate, to give someone their Miranda rights, et cetera, et cetera. That's my responsibility. But I am only as good with all that that I have, all that authority that comes with my job is only as valuable as you giving me the legitimacy to do it. Right. I can be the best brain surgeon in the world. But if people out there don't trust that I've been trained at UCLA Medical and I rotated in there and rotated at San Francisco General, all that means nothing. If people don't see me, trust me and give me the legitimacy of a surgeon, it's the same way in policing. And I tell police officers this all the time. You've been given the authority by the state. But it is the communities that give you your legitimacy in order to carry out your function. And when we have a trusting relationship and we're constantly working on that relationship, when something happens, we don't separate from each other. We join together to try to find resolve to it. So it goes beyond just coffee and a cop. That's a nice notion you do once a month, once a, you know, once a week. But the real value in building community relationships where people come in, get to see and know their police department and officers, that's where the real value is. It's not coffee with a cop every Tuesday morning at Starbucks. It's relationships that we garner 24 hours around the clock. We are part of the communities in which we serve, and the communities are very much part of their police department. The father of law enforcement, the father of policing. So Robert Peel stated that in the mid-1800s when he stood up the first police department there in London, when he was home secretary. The people are the police and the police are the community. So that is basic, fundamental, and essential. But we have to define, we got to be clear about something here. We got 18,000 police departments across this country. 18,000, with 18,000 different leadership personalities. And a lot of things culturally are within policing are similar, and a lot of things are not. But here's the one thing I know that we have to have if we want to maintain our sense of legitimacy, regardless of where you police in this country. We got to have the trust of the people in which we serve. And we have to be professional. We have to be above par. We have to be ethical. 
And we got to be constitutional in everything that we do. Because when we look back at the history of policing, policing stood up under systemic racism. Call it what it is. At one point, it used to keep me on this side of the street and you on the other side of the street. That wasn't law, but that was what they were directed to do. Even though we have the same hairdo? Even though we have the same hairdo being bald. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And so um, I know you did this amazing work with President Obama and the task force. Um, Are there things since then that you think uh, need to be changed in terms of uh, police reimagining police reform? I think every community. And here again, we got 18,000 police departments across this country. Every community is different. What they may need in Silver Springs, Maryland, may be very different than what's needed in policing in your community there in Northern California. And communities have to be a part of that process when it comes to addressing public safety. No longer do I just get to sit in the ivory tower with my command staff and say, this is the best public safety for Chris. That has to be a joint effort. I bring my expertise as a police officer and our executive. You bring the realism for the block that you live on. What's real for you? Because I don't live on that block. Whether you live in a gated community, in a suburban community, or whether you live in an urban community, whether you live in a rural area, wherever the case may happen to be, people know the type of public safety they would like to have in their communities. And we need to be able to listen to people, tell us what it is that they need, because the needs may be very different. And the way in which we carry out the missions may be very different because communities have their own personalities. And we have to have police leadership and police departments that are able to adjust to the communities in which they lead, but uh, uh, in which they work. But here's what's most important that has to be consistent across all communities across this country. If we are who we say we are as a nation, then regardless of where we live, we have to be constitutional and we have to be equal to everyone. We have to be fair. And we also need to be conscious of what our own implicit biases are. Because, Chris, we all got them. And it ain't just the simple black and white. Sometimes it's places and things that we may have biases towards. It may be generational. We may have an unconscious bias as baby boomers towards millennials or Generation Y and et cetera. But we need to be conscious of that because when we go out and we police We don't just police people who look like us. And even if you and I look alike, even if you and I are two men who may be from different cultures, and I don't lend into that whole race thing because that's not scientific, that is man-made, but we have cultural difference where we come from different ethnic groups. We may look different in terms of color, That's it. But we probably have more similarities than we do have differences, right? And if we don't get beyond just who we see, I don't know who you're married to. I don't know your religious practice. I don't know your 
sexual orientation. I don't know what color your children are, whether they special needs or not special needs. All I know is that right now I'm looking at a white male on this Zoom screen, but that's all I know of you. You look at me, I see an African-American male. We can draw assumptions about each other, but we don't know each other. And we don't get to know each other until we know people. And I tell police officers this all the time. I don't care what community you serve in, whether people live in a suburban community, whether they live in a rural community, whether they live in public housing, whatever the case may happen to be. We don't know people until we know people. Right. And we always, as public servants, we always have to keep that door open because this cops always talk about they don't want to be stereotyped. Neither do the people that we confront and engage and interface with. They don't want to be stereotyped either. Yes. Now. Let's move if we could. You know, you've been very visible of late, although you're pretty visible generally with the uh, murder trial uh, and the George Floyd murder. Would you mind giving me, doctor, your assessment of what happened that fateful day? Well, I mean, myself, like millions of Americans who watched that horrific video that occurred on May 25th of 2020. And for many of us that are in the law enforcement profession, it was uh, it was very heart wrenching for us to watch this because we knew if we have any kind of conscience about ourselves, we knew what we witnessed that day was wrong. You have three men on a man who's in a subdued position and you have a knee in this neck and he's begging to breathe. And there's people who believe, well, the fact that he could speak, he could breathe. Uh, yeah, right before I choke out on this stake, I probably can get enough out help, but I'm on my way out. So People who are drowning can say help, and then they suck in the water and drown. And as somebody who, who trains martial arts, you know, you get a chokehold on somebody, they can talk a little bit. For a second. But... Here's a man who begged for to breathe and whether he was telling the truth about whether he could breathe or not. And we now know that he couldn't. What was wrong with taking your foot off his neck, which is in, which is not a legal or a taught self-defense tactic. And he was handcuffed at the time, was he not? Handcuffed. And you had a junior officer who was four days, four days, Chris, on his own off field training. Four days. He hadn't even completed a, a, a week on a job by himself. Not a week. And he had enough, no, he had enough in himself to say to Shamar, shouldn't we turn him over? But in policing, it's like in a lot of other cultures, seniority takes first precedent. And Siobhan being a senior officer, no. And these two officers, who I truly believe felt that something was wrong but didn't have the power to do anything different, now get taken down in this. And is, of course, I've never been a police officer. In that situation, if you're that, that new cop or, or the subordinate cops, the, the less senior cops, 
I mean, the hum- the humanity in that situation, it, it makes me want to tackle Chauvin and get him off George. That's not something that's would come into the mind of a police officer in that situation. And we're just speculating here. Not if you're a rookie. If an 18-year veteran tell me to stand here on this corner and shut up, I'm going to stand here on this corner and shut up. Because it's a command and control environment. That's the culture. That is a culture. Okay? And don't let anybody tell you different. That is the culture. Senor, you take precedent. And Siobhan did not demonstrate himself as a senior officer. And whatever was on his mind, he got his day in court. Something that George Floyd would never have. But when you lean in on his neck for nine and a half minutes, and then he goes limp, even when he goes limp, you still lean in. He's got his day in court, so we'll see what happens. The other thing is a layman that seems to have been lost in some of this discussion is if I'm understanding the case, and of course you know it better than I do, um, this whole situation, the reason the police were called in the first place was a concern about the fact that potentially uh, George Floyd had used a counterfeit $20 bill. Mm-hmm. And so let's say for sake of argument, it was for a second. Um, he stole $20 if that was true. And so as law enforcement thinks about the use of force, how does use of force uh, sort of triangulate to the uh, crime that is being accused? Well. <laughs> Look, let's back up and let's take that call for service. An alleged $20 bill has been passed, allegedly, right? You and I get to the scene, Chris, and the store owner say, that guy there, we believe, passed us upon a $20 bill. We could have affected our arrest. Or quite frankly, we could have took possession of the $20 bill, got all the personal information we needed for people that's involved, including Mr. Floyd, sent it over to the Secret Service, that's who investigate counterfeit, and they would have done absolutely nothing with it. Absolutely nothing. But you tie up four officers in a half day of work with someone who passed a alleged $20 bill fake $20 bill. That's the question I ask. Is that something that we want to screw around with? Is that something we want to waste our time with? Well, and the other thing that occurs to me, doctor, is if it was, let's assume for a sec it was fake. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a scenario that says that George Floyd knew that and he was trying to steal from the store. Right. However, you and I go to stores all the time. Mm-hmm. You and I give a cashier $20 to pick up a some gum or a mm-hmm. snack bar or whatever, you know, a drink or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And I have no way of knowing whether the 20 or frankly the hundred or whatever currency I'm giving the clerk, I don't know whether it's counterfeit or not. It's very possible that I'm not committing a crime that maybe I got that 20 as changed somewhere else and nobody realized it was counter. Like, and so my point is if even it was counterfeit, there is a very potential real scenario that says George Floyd had no idea that it was counterfeit, even if it was. And I guess we don't know that. And so, you know, this could happen to me today. Mm-hmm. It can happen to any of us. 
and it happened to supposedly to George Floyd. Should that have been equated into an arrest to him get a gun pulled on him sitting inside of his car? I don't even know how it even elevated to that level. So, I mean, we got to go back and we really got to take a real hard look at what is it that we're asking police to do and what is it that we want to get them truly engaged in? Because quite frankly, and we're Monday morning quarterback here, quarterbacking here, but the simplest thing would have been to do, take the $20 bill, give them a, a property receipt at the store or whoever they collected it from, run a records check on the person you just engaged with, Floyd. There are no outstanding wants and warrants. We know where he is, who he is. He frequents the neighborhood. And we'll see you later. If we need to contact you, we will. But it would have been something that turned right into nothing. I mean, we saw the same thing on, uh, where was that, on Long Island with the with the uh, Lucy cigarettes being sold. And a man, you know, getting into a scuffle with the police. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we sending our police officers out to enforce cigarette Lucy's uh, violations? Now, that may be a big deal in New York City because a lot of taxes collected off cigarettes. If you and I are selling Lucy's in front of someone's store, yeah, they're going to get ticked off. They're going to report it to the precinct. The precinct going to tell me and you and roll call, hey, Alexander, Chris, you know, if you got people are complaining, they're selling Lucy's in front of their store, et cetera. Well, we knew that this gentleman who ended up dying had a history of selling Lucy's. But do we we really have to ask ourselves, Lucy's in a fake $20 bill turning into such a horrible situation, both for those who life their lives and for the officers involved. We need to start asking ourselves, what is it that we want our police officers to do? Another thing that could have happened with George Floyd, he could have been given an appearance ticket. Take it. Here's an appearance ticket. If that was the case, if he was going to be arrested, we got to ask ourselves, what is we want our police officers to do? Because if we go out and ask them to do these things, that engages a larger social issue in our in our communities. And then the officers end up taking horrible hits as a result of it. Not that they had any intentions of doing anything wrong. Things just went south in a hurry. But in the case of George Floyd and in the case of Derek Chauvin, that is just a clear, to me, very clear, going back to your original question, what I think about it, it was poor policing. It was poor leadership. It was inhumane. It is someone who had no, zero compassion for human life and sit there with his knee very callously and in and, and a very cold look and stare as if he didn't give a darn. Even when this man went limp, he did not change his posture. And but here again, he'll get afforded what George Floyd was not afforded. Yes. And that's an opportunity to tell his story. As a citizen, as somebody who loves the United States of America deeply, I want to believe in our justice system. But of late, I've had a bit of a dilemma that I wanted to share with you, which is, so we see this horrible murder of George Floyd, 
and I know it's not been classified as such until the case is, is, is played out, but I know what I saw on TV. And yet we have this attack on the Capitol. And we've had many arrests, as you well know. And I've read some terrible things about what has transpired with the primarily men who were arrested at that, what I consider to be insurrection. Things like uh, a former police officer who was there, who owned firearms, who was told by a judge that he could leave on his own reconnaissance, and he had was given 10 days to surrender his firearms to a friend of his. Mm-hmm. I've read things like others who breached the Capitol, who wanted to go on trips to Mexico, get married, things like this, were given special ability to do that by the court system. And so I look at this, Dr. Alexander, and I go, you know, excuse my language, but what the fuck's going on here? This cop takes these actions for a $20 bill that may or may not have had any nefarious intention behind it at all. And yet these people who breached our capital are given these, what I would call extraordinary allowances. I I can't rationalize that in my head. And that makes me lose faith in our justice system. How do you think about things like that? I'm a very conservative guy, and uh, I grew up in a conservative community, conservative family, been conservative in my policing all my life. But conservatism, to me, means that you live by the U.S. Constitution. It's family, it's God, it's country, it's doing what's right by your fellow man to your fellow man. And that's who I am. But you have to recognize, even people who don't want to recognize it, that the whole criminal justice system stood up and stood up the way that it did. If you look through history and you're willing to have the courage to acknowledge it, it's a racist system, period. I don't care who agree or don't agree. That's what it is. Have we attempted to make progress over the years? Yes, we have. Now, you talk about January 6th. Not only people who were given certain privileges, but you even got one who got a special diet that only he can be vegetarian while he's in prison. That was completely outrageous. The shaman, you're going to make me want to swear more, but I was screaming at the television when I heard that. Yeah, so... When people see that, just imagine for a moment in all of your white privilege that you're given, whether you acknowledge it or not, imagine for a moment, right, that it's me or thousands of people who look like me rushing into the Capitol. There would have been dead bodies all over the place and nobody would have gave a damn, we just would have been seen as being animals climbing up the side of a wall, tearing down the government, bada bing, bada bang. That's how it would have been seen if it had been me. Well, and even some of the things these guys are charged with, they're charged with ridiculous things to me as a citizen. They're charged with 
very minor sounding things. They're not being charged with treason. They're not being charged with attempted murder. Right. You know, they were trying to kill the vice president of the United States. That seemed very, very clear to me. Again, I'm not an expert in law enforcement. And yet the charges being brought against these criminals sound ridiculous. And to your point, I think you're absolutely right. If those were African-Americans, if those were Asian-Americans, imagine if those were Muslim-Americans. Like, And so it seems insane to me. And, and so I want to have faith in our country. I want to have faith in our system. And yet we are experiencing right now this 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 bifurcation in the justice system that is I, there aren't even words I have to to describe it. It's it's not egregious. It's not horrible. I, I don't even know what to call it other than systemic racism. Yeah, I mean it is what it is, and uh, I can acknowledge that being a person who is you know who subscribed to conservative values. It is what it is. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a black man in America. I don't care how you cut it. You know, I'm not blue. I'm black. And that's what I was born and that's what I'll die. Uh, blue was a profession, but it doesn't define me. I define policing by the way that I carry out my functions, by the way that I lead, by the way that I treat people fairly and unbiasedly. That is what I'm blue at, right? And here's the embarrassing part for law enforcement on that day. We saw Capitol Police officers who appeared to be empathizers, who dropped their posts and walked away, abandoned their posts. And while some of their brother officers and sisters were horribly injured and killed, then we later learned that there were police officers from around the country who came to the rally that day. And there's nothing wrong with them going to that rally. They should support whoever it is that they want to support in their private time. But when you breach that capital, you just entered into a whole new zone. And when that happens, we've had several law enforcement officers who lost their jobs. But here was the hard part for law enforcement. When you had U.S. attorneys across this country sending out messages to chiefs and sheriffs, see where your officers were on January 6th. And imagine now being, whether you're a person of color, whether you're whatever you may happen to be, right, or just a decent person, period. How do you think that that make people feel, right? How do you think that made people These are men and women sworn to protect us, to sworn protect. to uphold the Constitution, and they're attacking, they're attacking the heart of our government. People don't care whether you support Biden. People don't care whether you support Trump. At the end of the day, people want to feel that whoever comes to their home is going to treat them fairly. But if they imagine you watching me, you being, imagine you being a Jewish American in this country of Jewish faith. And I'm your friend, Cedric Alexander. And you see me out there standing next to a guy who got on some atrocious t-shirt, right? That support. Uh, 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 I know that t-shirt you mean. It's, really? It's, it's, it's shocking. Just shocking. Imagine if you saw me there as your police officer from your neighborhood, from your city, from your state. I How would never you trust you again. And I'm not Jewish, but I wouldn't trust you anyway. 
You get my yes, point. Yes, of course. You get my point. But yet we want to ask people to trust us. And then all the good cops across this country have to carry that black eye. And it's not fair to no. the majority of men and women who are out there who protect and serve and do this job with dignity and with respect and constitutionally while I, a handful, and really, I don't know how many it is. Quite frankly, we don't know. But at the end of the day, people can support who they want to support. But when I, if I come to your home or you come to my home, I want to feel that you're there to, to be fair and to be ethical in all that you do and whatever stuff that you carry, you leave that, you leave that crap somewhere else. And that may be very, very tough for, for a lot of men and women who are out there doing a great job when you had these folks who were demonstrating something else and it fits right into where a lot of people want that to fit. And we hear this term, oh, there's only a few bad apples. And the way I think about this as a citizen is there's certain jobs where we can't have any bad apples. We can't have bad pilots crashing planes or drinking, and we can't have bad apple pilots. And there are many jobs that we can't have bad apples, and we can't have bad apple doctors who are treating patients horribly and doing immoral things. And, you know, when we find these things out, that Larry Nasser and these horrible things, right, we take swift action. And we can't have bad apples in policing. I, I realize you can't get rid of all of them. I, I, I understand that. Human beings are going to act in, in, in bizarre and in horrible ways. But what can we do in policing that materially reduces the racism and materially reduces, quote unquote, bad apples so that um, the incidents of, you know, these killings of black people and these racist uh, cops, that these things are materially uh, diminished and, and, and are become the exception, not the rule. Well, what are we going to have to do is this. First of all, following the January 6th incident, when you had U.S. attorneys calling around, check and see where your people were on January 6th, that was heartbreaking for me. And then you had the Secretary of Defense give a command order. We're going to go out. We're going to look at everyone in the military to make sure that they're not associated with some far wing hateful group. We got to know who it is that we're recruiting into our public service and into our military. People have a right to belong to any organization that they choose they want to belong to. That's the beauty of living in America. But when it comes to public service, that is an exceptional calling. And it means that people that we come in contact with and interface with trust us. They need to trust us. Do we have bad people in the world? Yes, we do. Do we need police who are going to confront them and take appropriate action? Yes, we do. Do we have enemies around the world that want to do harm? Yes, we do. And we need to be ready to fight and defend on both of those fronts. But at the same time, we have to have people who are responsible, well-trained, people who have been vetted. And we got to go deeper in policing than just looking at someone's driver's license record 
are they are the relatives of someone that's inside the organization or they got a good credit history and all that stuff. All that is very important. But we got to dig deeper into who they are. What do the social media footprint look back look like? Who did they associate with, affiliate with? Who did they line up with? And if it's not going to be as a standard, a high standard, where you can serve and protect, then you don't have a damn bit of business inside this profession. Because if I'm recruited and I have a dislike and a hatred towards people because of their race or their religion or whatever the case may happen to be, if I have a disdain towards people because of their sexual preference, I have no business whatsoever being a public servant. We live in a very diverse America. And in this America, we got to have men and women who respect differences, respect differences. And, and, and it's just that basic and fundamental. And But when we hear these horrific cases like you did there in L.A. just a few weeks ago of the horrible email that went out regarding George Floyd and that statement that was made, you take my breath away. Imagine the black eye it cast up on every man, woman, civilian, and sworn inside that department. Imagine the reflection that it has on that agency. And you saw the same thing in Philadelphia with a lot of racist, hateful social media email were coming out of there a few years ago. People got fired. People got suspended. But when people in the communities look at that and see that, that's where police begin to lose its legitimacy. And people don't give a darn about you got a gun or you got authority by the state to affect arrest. People don't care. Because for me to be an effective police officer, to be an effective public servant, if I don't have your support in those communities, my job has just gotten 10 times more dangerous. And we have to build those relationships. And we got to work at it. But in being, being a person that is fair and equitable to everyone is not a sign of weakness. It is strength. When we say we're guardians and not warriors, it's not a sign of weakness. It means that I have the ability to work and join people in their communities, but I also have the ability to handle you if I got to handle you. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I can take well, it. You know, you know, we could take it either way because I'm trained to do all of that, but I don't come marching inside your community just kicking down doors and kicking butt and taking names because you want to feel a part of that community. But when you got to fight, and I used to tell my men and women this in both the cab and in Rochester, New York, if we got to fight, we will fight. So this leads me to another question that I'm concerned about. And I think a lot of citizens are, it goes to this whole conversation around use of force. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, I think we want our, our women and men in blue to be respectful and to be thoughtful and to be empathetic and, and have this community mindset, as you described, uh, doctor. At the same time, I don't want our police to be handicapped or kneecapped in any way. We had a horrible murder of uh, Sergeant uh, Damon Gertzweiler here in Santa Cruz last summer. 
and a, a former military guy who was associated with, I can't remember if it was Proud Boys or Boogaloo Boys, but that sort of crowd, if you will, had killed some officers over in Oakland and was planning to do more. And a good Samaritan citizen noticed this van with all sorts of ARs in it and pipe bombs and this and that and called. And so a two, the Sergeant Gertzweiler and his partner went to this person's house, parked the car, opened their doors, and he unloaded an AR on them, killing Sergeant Gertzweiler and wounding his, his partner. And I just, I'm fearful that police will hesitate. I, I don't know that, that that happened in that moment, but I'm fearful that, we'll, that, that in situations like that, in high pressure situations where, where you know, the thing I, I admire the most is you risk your life to protect my life. And I don't want you to hesitate. You know, we just had this killing of this police officer in the Capitol again. And I thought to myself, how is this possible? And as a citizen, of course, I wasn't there. I don't know. But I, I can't help but wonder, are police hesitating in some of these moments, creating uh, danger for themselves and for others? And so how do we walk this magic line between being empathetic, being thoughtful, applying the Constitution, but at the same time, not worrying about public backlash when use of force is required and lives are on the line, that that police officers are empowered the way I think many of us want them to be empowered? That's not a hard question to answer. But let's look at the cases across this country where police have been at serious questions in shootings. Those Many of those have not been cases of making a quick decision in the moment, right? Not all of them. Let's think about that. It certainly was not the case with a number of events that I could go back and, and name, right? When we sign up for this job, we know it's a very dangerous job. And yes, there are times when you're going to have to make split moment decisions. And Every situation is going to present its own set of circumstances. Yes, they are. The average cop that come to work every day don't want to go to work to hurt anybody. And at the same time, don't want to be hurt either. But we don't know what the day is going to bring in any city USA. We have to be prepared as best that we can. We have to make a decision in that moment the very best we can. When I was at the cab, I had a couple of incidents where officers should have fired their weapons, but didn't because they hesitated because they were concerned about what the community would say. And here's what I told them. You do exactly how you were trained. You make a decision in that moment that you have to protect yourself and others around you. And you don't use that as an excuse. You use that as, as that was really where you were at that moment. Because you got to be able to articulate why you fired that shot. You got to be able to articulate why you had to take a life. You got to be able to articulate what occurred. And only you can do that. And in 99% of the cases in this country, Police officers make the right decisions. And I use that as an arbitrary number, right? I use it as an arbitrary number. But officers make the right decisions. But the ones that are not the right decisions, the ones in which, rather, I had to 
choke a man out or whether I fired way too soon or whether I was whatever was going on. I'm the one have to be able to 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 articulate what happened and to be able to defend that. And what I say to men and women, I used to say this to my guys. You go out and you do the very best that you can. And you're going to have to make a decision sometimes in that moment. That's not every day. Ninety percent of policing, Chris, is public relations. Only a small percentage of policing. We're really doing hardcore enforcement. Only a small percentage. But in those cases that we have questionable shootings, the first thing we always have to do is say what happened. Speak to what happened. Be honest, be forthright, and just be constitutional about it. That's it. But you have to make that decision. You make that decision. I remember years ago when I was policing in Miami, way back in the early 80s. And it was following some very horrific riots in the early, early 80s, McDuffie riots. Many of your listeners are going to be too young to remember. A lot of death, a lot of mayhem following the uh, nun conviction of six white male police officers who beat a black motorcyclist to death. There was a change of venue from Miami to Tampa. They were found not guilty and Miami burned. And I came on shortly thereafter that. And I remember we had people leaving in department by droves. They didn't want to be cops no more, so they left. Some of them needed to leave, quite frankly. And we didn't have very many people on our shifts. We were working with a great deal of shortages in many of the mean streets of Miami. And Miami was some mean streets back in the early 80s. And I remember a lieutenant came into a roll call. And we all were worried about, well, we have to use deadly force. Are we going to be backed and supported by the department? We all were scared, but we yeah. all knew we had to do. And here's something that lieutenant told us. And I carried that with me and my leadership going forward. You go out and do your job and let me worry about the rest. Just go out and do your job. And I want men and women across this country who are listening to you today, tonight, tomorrow, whenever. I want them to go out and do their job and get home. But I want them to be honest and forthright. I don't want them to hesitate, but I want them to use the very best judgment that they can. I want them to slow it down and take as much precaution as they can. But whatever they have to do to preserve their life and the life of others, they're the ones who are going to need to be able to articulate that. And when people feel they have a police department that is open and transparent and tell them as much as they know, it helps communities to feel better. And when I have a relationship with that community, it helps us work through these difficult times together. We got tons of wonderful men and women who are out there in your community, my community, doing a fantastic job today, tonight. And we want to be able to support them. But we also want to hold them to that same standard that we would hold a neurosurgeon to. He don't get to have a bad day and do brain no. surgery. He don't get to have a bad day. If no. you have a bad day, stay home. 
lives are on the line. Bad day, go home. It's okay. Get the mental health support that you need because it can be a taxing and overwhelming job cumulatively over time. So we want to support our police and our officers, but we also want to be able to be sure that the communities in which we're serving, wherever we're serving, we're giving them our very best. And if I have to use any level of force, I'm able to to conscientiously, in good faith, know that I did everything that I could to preserve life. But if I have to take extreme action, I'm able to articulate it honestly and without question. It is a tough job. There are times when you may have to make decisions in a split second, but that ain't every day. <laughs> right. But it happened any day. At any moment. Right. And at any moment. Now, I'd also love to talk to you about sort of security broadly in the United States. You know, in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, we had towns like Seattle and Portland who were overrun, who had sections of them were, that were ungovernable, uh, mm-hmm. where destruction happened and rapes happened, in some cases murders happened, and it perpetuated for, for weeks mm-hmm. on end. We saw our capital breached with, you know, what looked like to me as an average citizen an extraordinary thing that should never have been even possible Mm -hmm. and this most recent killing at the Capitol. And so I just look at this stuff and I think, how is this stuff possible? You know, I spent time in Israel by way of example, and I don't know what the realities are, but the impression you get in a place like Israel is security is very tight everywhere. And if you tried some of that stuff, uh, you'd probably be dead or arrested pretty quickly. And so Mm -hmm. how is it that, Well, let me ask this question. It appears to me, and I don't want to be overly critical, but we are soft on some of these things. You don't hear this happening in Singapore. You don't hear this happening in Israel, in some countries where they take uh, security and law enforcement very seriously. Why do we tolerate these things? Why does the Capitol happen? Why does Seattle and Portland happen? Yeah, well, that's partly why I'm not a police chief today. And as much as I love being a chief, I was a no-nonsense chief. I was no-nonsense when it came to my men and women. I was protective of them as long as they were doing things the right way and they were doing it constitutionally and legally and ethically. I stood with them when they were right. And I don't give a damn who didn't like it. If they were doing their job and they did it right, I stood with them. I didn't talk out of both sides of my mouth. And then when they needed to be held responsible, they were disciplined. And in a few cases, they were terminated. And even in a few cases, they were charged with offenses, criminal offenses. It comes with the territory, comes with the job. It comes with being a strong chief. But here's the thing why I can't chief today. Because what happened in Portland and in what happened in Seattle and Carmen Bess, who's a friend of mine, She was an outstanding chief in Seattle and she had enough and she left. You cannot, you have to have a line that you draw in the sand. I'm not going to let you take over streets. I'm not going to let you take over buildings. I don't care how right you are, how wrong you may happen to be. We're going to do things that are going to be legal and it's going to be safe. 
I'm not going to allow you to set up communes in a city street and you take city blocks and I can't come in it. That's not going to happen. And here's the thing. I don't need to be a chief just to say I'm a chief. I need to chief. I need to be a chief that has the power and authority that goes along with it to be decent and fair to everybody, to protect life and to hold my men and women responsible, but also to hold communities responsible to do their part. So I probably will never be a chief again because I'm not kissing anybody's ass to be a chief. I'm going to do the job fairly. I'm going to do the job with integrity and I'm going to do the job in a way that it protects people in that community. I don't need to be a chief just for the sake of being a chief. I need to have the authority that goes along with it so that I can do what's right. And when you hire me, you're going to know this. And if you can't be okay with it, then you ain't lost nothing. And I ain't either. Well, and to put it really bluntly, and look, if this makes me a Neanderthal or you just tell me, but in Seattle and Portland, why do we talk, we as a, as a community, as a culture, why do we tolerate that? Why don't we say, hey, listen, you've got five hours, six hours, two hours, 10 minutes, whatever it is to, to get out of here. And if not, we're coming to get you. Why is it that this most recent killing in the Capitol, the minute that guy's car breaches the barrier, why isn't that guy dead? I just, you know, in Israel, if you tried that shit, you'd be dead. In Singapore, if you tried that, you'd be dead. I, I just don't understand why we're soft like this. It, it boggles my mind. If it was happening in front of my house right now, I'll tell you, I would not be soft about it. Right. Well, we have to be willing to take a stand. And I get elected officials positions. I get it. But if you want a chief to be strong, if you want a chief to be assertive, you got to have a chief that's going to be constitutional, that is going to be fair and have the same expectation of his men and women. And then if I'm your, if I'm the mayor and you work for me as a chief, I didn't hire you for me to tell you how to do your job. I hired you because you should know how to do that job. Right. And yes. if you don't, then I remove you. But I have to give you the authority that goes along with that rank. And if I cannot do that, I don't want to be a chief just for the sake of being a chief. I could have never chief neither one of those departments, not me. And I wouldn't chief anywhere today unless I'm given the authority to do what needs to be done. But more importantly, to build those relationships, to build that trust, to build legitimacy, but also to make sure that my men and women are protected that they're paid well, they have good benefits, they have all everything that they need to carry out a mission. And so that when I hold them responsible, I can hold them responsible knowing and I can sleep at night knowing that we're giving them the very best that they need and we're there to support them as long as they're doing the right thing. And so one of the things I hear a lot now, doctor, is sort of the quote-unquote demilitarization of the police, that some of the uh, more sort of uh, military-like capabilities the police have, you know, if for uh, sake of example, I, you'll excuse me for not, not knowing the technical terms, but here in Santa Cruz, we have at least one of these sort of tank-like vehicles. Uh, and of course, 
more and more police are carrying, um, you know, ARs or, 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 or automatic weapons of some sort. And, and you hear that we, we want to get rid of all this stuff so police aren't mir- militarized. Well, I look at it and go, well, wait a minute. The bad guys have all these things. And so don't we have to equip our, our law enforcement with the tools they need to meet the challenge that they're faced with? And so I, I don't quite understand this, quote unquote, demilitarize the police. And I understand there's abuses. I get that. And we've, we've talked about ways in which you recommend stopping those abuses. But don't we have to equip our police with the right tools to deal with the job? There are, to your point earlier, there are terrorist groups in this country that want to kill Americans. There are extreme hate groups on all, all sides of political spectrums that want to do horrible things to individuals, to law enforcement, to elected officials and so forth. I, I don't I, I kind of I don't understand this. How, how do you do, how do you think about that? Here's what happened. Police did not explain to the communities in which they serve why I got an MRAP, a tank, out on your street. They didn't explain to the community why we wear these vests with all this equipment that look very militarized. They didn't explain to the communities why they have long rifles. They did not explain. You have to explain to the community, this is why we have this gear. When uh, doing this whole 1033 program, I remember five or six years ago when a lot of this military uh, equipment was being passed on to police departments across the country. Chris, you had police departments that was accepting this equipment like MRAPs, tanks. They had even no policy to go with it. They just had it. We'll pull it out when there's a riot. And then they pull it out in Ferguson pointing down range at Americans who were nonviolent. You can't do that. You cannot do that. But do they need that equipment? Yes, but you need to be able to articulate to the community, this is why we have an MRAP. This is why we have a tank. This is the purpose for it. This is when we're going to utilize it. This is when you're going to see it deployed. This is why we have long rifles. This is why officers have utility vests on, because they have more equipment now in order to carry out their function. This is part of the police community piece. When you tell people what you're doing and why you're doing it, oh, I get it. I understand it. But when we don't have, when, but when we're giving a lot of this equipment that had been given away, such as what civilians will call tanks, there was no policy around it. Communities weren't informed as to why is it being utilized? So when we come up showing up like a military force, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that the U.S. Army or is that my local police department, right? But when we talk to communities and you tell them this is why we use this equipment, this is when we deploy this equipment, then people can be okay with it. Because the American people know that police have to use force. They know that they have to protect and defend themselves and the citizens that they have to protect. But they people today want to know why we do things and we have to get out of our arrogance and be able to share with folks. This is why we do those things that we. So do. is that why you say 90 percent of policing is public relations? It's a communications failure is public relations. It's public relations. A lot of the calls we go to uh, are, are calls where 
think a variety of different calls that may more be more PR related than it is shots fired, <laughs> you know, but we have to have good policing and we have to have police. We should not def- defund police. That needs to be totally taken off the table. It got politicized last year following the death of George Floyd, and it did not benefit the American people. We need to give policing more money. I agree with you, doctor. Give them more money. I will pay more taxes for it. So hold them accountable to be able to have deliverables to that community yes. they serve as well. Now, if I could, and if you don't want to talk about this, just... Uh kick me under the table. Is there anything you want to say about what's going on with voting rights in Georgia? You know, no, not a whole lot other than the fact it certainly does give the impression, and I'm a Republican, and it certainly does give the impression that votes are being suppressed. And when you have a significant part of your population believe that they're experiencing voter suppression in their state, particularly in a state that recounted votes several times, particularly in a state where a, a Republican secretary of state validated and stated that it was done fairly and equitably. And yet there was a continuation of these stories of this being an illegal election does not work for the betterment of the American people in that state or across this country. So I think we need to hit the pause button here. And I think those that are on the right and the left of the aisle need to find a way to come together because one thing we don't ever want to do is to suppress anyone votes or to give the appearance of any votes being suppressed because we want every American, regardless of who they are, where they live, uh, to know the truth and not be guided by misleading statements and lies that has not been proven at every level in our judicial system. So you cannot minimize that. This is not a time to play games in this country. The demographics of this country is changing. That is a reality that we all need to come to terms with. And we're going to have to find a way and a space in order to be able to do this together. Because quite frankly, Chris, the people on the right and the left are tired of being separated. They're tired of this. They're getting sick and tired of it. And those that are in leadership positions on the right and the left, they need to get together and provide leadership for everyone. All of them got great points that they make. But the American people are getting tired of the division because it is taxing. It is wearing on us. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're still in the, in, in, in the middle of trying to re- our, trying to get our economy to recover. This is a time for leadership. This is a time for leadership. That's what I think of, of, of wake up in the morning thinking about and reading about is how to be a good, better leader right from where I am and to role model what I want others to be able to do. Wow, that was amazing. Doctor, um, I want to be super respectful of your time. I deeply appreciate this conversation. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here. And uh, this is a very critical time in the history of our nation. And 
uh, we as Americans, regardless of where we live, what political party we're associated, affiliated with, or uh, whatever our particular ethnic background or religious makeup or sexual orientation, whatever, we're a diverse nation. We're a strong nation. We're a powerful nation. And we will only stay that way if we recognize the the power and and the talents and the resources that we all bring together. And whether you're over on the far left or on the far right, you need to find some way in which we as a nation can find our way back. Because I truly believe that people in this country want to find a way back and we got to find our way back. Thank you so much, doctor. It's been a pleasure. And I also want to thank you for risking your life to save our lives. And uh, I deeply appreciate this time and, and your service. Bless you. And when you see a police officer out there on the street, walk up to him and shake the hand. Tell him you appreciate it. They need it. Well, I do. As a matter of fact, when a cop drives by me, I wave the peace sign at them, as I do with uh, firefighters as well. Right on. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. I deeply appreciate you. Thank you, Chris. Well, there he is, Dr. Cedric Alexander. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm, I'm pretty positive you did. And I want to thank you so much for um, spending time with this extraordinary American. Don't forget to subscribe to our uh, oddcast on your favorite oddcast player so that you will get our next episode and all the other wonderful episodes we have coming to you. And don't forget Dr. Alexander's book, The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. And Dr. Alexander is represented by Speakers Bureau, the Robin Wolfson Agency. Now, to succeed in today's reality, you need every advantage, a legendary platform that enables you to change on a dime. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. It's the world's number one cloud business system. And regardless of your top priorities, NetSuite is there for you, making financial operations more efficient, getting better control of inventory and fulfillment, helping to drive new digital revenue streams. NetSuite is the platform that you need to build your business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now, I'd like to share with you something that I found quite stunning. Uh, it turns out that the amount of data created over the next three years is projected to be uh, more than the amount of data created over the past 30 years. Wrap your head around that. If it wasn't clear uh, then, it sure is clear now. Data is the strategic asset. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, providing a platform in the, in the cloud that creates massive competitive advantage. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary American, Dr. Cedric Alexander. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, for this extraordinary conversation and our friends at the Robin Wolfson Agency. 
Autranet has been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. If you're in the B2B business, check out atre.net. Our friends at Squadcast.fm are the platform for podcasters who want to sound like professionals. That's Squadcast.fm, and they are the platform we use. Our friends at Bottleneck.online want to help scale you with the power of a distant assistant, a legendary person empowered by technology that helps you scale you that is nowhere near you. Bottleneck.online. And my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's oddcast is a sole property, the Lodcast, the Lodcast, <laughs> the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're going to have a podcast, you should learn how to talk, Lockhead. All rights do remain disturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. You can check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my favorites. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by GM Simon. If you'd like to send us an email, go ahead and send it to blackhole, all one word, at Lockhead.com. That's Lockhead with two H's and no K. Please teach equality and diversity. Remember, different makes us stronger. And when we all do well, we all do well. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love your mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Today, our deepest apologies go out to Jim Crow. Sorry, Jim. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much, my friends. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. Uh, We deeply appreciate it. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.